Hi, Stuart. Hi, Tracy. Morning. Hi, Megan. Morning, Stuart. Morning, Tracy. Ahead and jump right in. Uh-oh. Already having audio issues. Let's see. Uh -huh. If I don't fix this in 60 seconds, we will just move on. I figured out the problem is not always in the same place, which makes it tricky to solve. All right, um, let's hope this sticks. I'll share my screen and we'll get started. Oops, hang on. All right. Here we go. So question one, can you provide some information on why some people struggle to lose weight even when they are consuming fewer calories than they're burning? Okay, so first of all, uh, precisely and accurately measuring calorie burn and intake is a very inexact science outside of a research setting. And even within a research setting, it's difficult and quite expensive to do. You need uh, to tightly control food intake by giving subjects everything that they'll eat. Plus, you then need um, something called the metabolic chamber to accurately measure energy expenditure. So generally, if someone isn't losing weight, I think that there's probably something in the energy input or output side of the equation that's not um, being properly accounted for. That's probably most often on the energy output side. So fitness trackers do a pretty poor job of actually telling you how many calories you burn during and away from exercise. And it's also difficult to measure resting metabolic rate. There are some equations that you can plug your metrics into and approximate your RMR. Otherwise, you really have to go to a metabolic testing center and measure gas exchange. But then on top of RMR, you also have, you know, that other component um, of, you know, how much you're burning walking around during the day and during exercise, uh, which is very, like I said, difficult to measure outside of a metabolic chamber. Additionally, when people go into a cal uh, calorie deficit or excess, there's a spectrum of responses, <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes to, um, uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is energy expenditure outside of, you know, actual exercise. So some people dramatically decrease their meat when they're in a caloric deficit, while others don't compensate nearly as much, which probably plays a role in how easy it is to lose weight while restricting calories. There will be some level of metabolic adaptation to caloric deficits as well. And for those who naturally keep their NEAT up, it's going to be far easier to lose weight compared to those who naturally uh, stop getting up and moving and fidgeting around during the day. Of course, um, apart from very 
sorry, I'm just gonna, we're just gonna stop this. Um, sorry if the audio quality gets a little bit worse, but I'm not gonna, not gonna mess with it today. Um, apart from those very understandable errors in the calories in and out model, things like hormones definitely come into play. Um, so whether that's cortisol or whether it's thyroid hormones or sex hormones, um, uh, those can certainly, you know, play a role in somebody not, and not losing weight when they're in a supposed caloric deficit. Um, I forgot to mention of uh, the error could also be on the caloric input side. So even with very precise tracking of food intake, Things like differences in the gut microbiota may impact how much energy somebody actually extracts from their food. Um, so going back to other factors outside of kind of that, um, you know, calories in, calories out equation, um, you have the, the hormones that could play a role. Sleep may also have an indirect effect on weight um, loss because sleep quality often goes down when in a caloric deficit. And um, at least larger deficits for longer periods of time definitely seem to negatively impact sleep. And the consequences there um, may be higher levels of stress hormones, circadian disruption, and changes in hormones related to appetite and satiety, which could ultimately impact how easy it is for someone to lose weight. Um, and genetics may also play a role as well, although I think that's probably a very small factor at play. Total body muscle mass could also be a variable here as uh, muscle mass, skeletal muscle mass in particular, it's a large contributing factor to resting metabolic rate and daily calorie expenditure. So the more muscle you have and the more that you're activating, the more calories that you'll be burning. And that the, the activating part comes back to both meat and also just the exercise that you're doing. Um, so to that extent, I would imagine that participating in resistance exercise or not plays a role in weight loss during a calorie deficit because um, it helps skew weight loss toward fat and away from muscle. And therefore, the more muscle you have, the more um, the, the higher your RMR is going to be, the more calories you'll just be burning naturally throughout the day. All right. Question two. I have heard that high fructose corn syrup is processed differently by the body than other sugar. Is high fructose corn syrup worse than other types of quote unquote bad sugars? And if so, why? Okay, so first of all, um, you know, when we're talking about sugar, generally speaking, um, you kind of have to put it into context before you call something good or bad, right? So if it's in the context of a whole foods nutrient-dense diet um, with a lot of fiber and, and um, you know, micronutrients, even if some of that sugar is coming from, you know, the more processed types of sugar, that's totally different than somebody eating a standard Western diet who, um, you know, has has metabolic syndrome and, you know, is living on soda and processed food, right? So fructose, if we're talking about fructose, in and of itself, it does kind of get a bad rap, but again, it's not harmful in amounts that you would naturally consume in a well-balanced whole food diet coming from things like fruit, maybe some honey. High fructose corn syrup gets singled out as a really big culprit uh, for things like diabetes and metabolic syndrome because it's easy to consume a lot of it at once in liquid form, such as in the form of soda and other sugar-sweetened beverages. So those two things 
the ability to consume a lot of it at once and in a liquid form. Um, a liquid form increases absorption, especially if it's consumed on an empty stomach. Um, so those two things make fructose, fructose potentially problematic from that metabolic health standpoint. Apart from high fructose corn syrup, sucrose, which is 50-50 fructose and glucose, is the other most common source of fructose in the Western diet and will largely be coming from added sugar in things like processed foods and baked goods. The biochemistry of fructose gets a little bit complicated. We'll link to a study or two in the show notes for those who want to dive deeper. Um, but the gist of it is that excessive fructose consumption may ultimately lead to ATP or cellular energy depletion due to the fact that fructokinase, which is a key enzyme in fructose metabolism, is poorly regulated in the liver, unlike enzymes that are involved in glucose metabolism, for example. So this fructose-induced cellular energy depletion has been suggested to cause inflammation and oxidative stress at the level of the kidneys, the liver, and also the vasculature. Excessive fructose can also promote fat deposition in the liver and increase triglyceride synthesis. And another reason that fructose is implicated in metabolic syndrome is that it can increase uric acid production and uric acid in a high amounts is implicated in cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and other metabolic pathologies. So again, if you're metabolically healthy and you're getting fructose from a well-balanced whole foods diet that includes some fruits, maybe some honey, um, there's nothing to worry about. When you start pushing fructose up to kind of 50, 60, 70 plus grams a day, um, and you know, in the literature, oftentimes they're using like 250 grams of fructose a day, which is a massive amount. Um, so when you start pushing fructose up to that, those higher levels every day and combine that with someone who is sedentary and already struggling with metabolic health, that's when problems seem to arise. To put that 50 plus grams into perspective and to give you an idea of the fructose content in some foods, um, a medium apple has about 12 grams of fructose. A cup of grapes has about 12 grams of fructose. Um, now remember those fruits are also coming with phytonutrients and micronutrients and fiber. Um, a cup of blueberries has about seven grams of fructose. One tablespoon of honey has about eight grams of fructose. And a 12 ounce can of regular soda has about 16 grams of fructose, which is coming from high fructose corn syrup typically. Um, soda and other foods made with high fructose corn syrup or sucrose end up again being particularly problematic compared to natural sources of fructose due to their lack of fiber, their lack of micronutrition, their hyperpalatability, and the fact that it's easy to consume a lot of it without getting much, if any, of a satiety signal. Question three, will you share insight on the risks of using scratched nonstick cookware? If purchasing nonstick cookware for someone, do you have a recommendation of material and possibly brand? <clears throat> So the main risk here, I think, would be that, that the toxic nonstick coating surface or and or whatever is underneath could uh, possibly flake off and get into your food. 
Teflon pans are probably the biggest issue of all of the nonstick pans, um, especially but not only when they start to chip and become scratched as the chemicals used in Teflon pans have been shown to be endocrine disruptors and also mutagens, mutagens um, meaning that they have been shown to cause DNA mutations. Apparently, the older Teflon pans that were made with PFAs uh, were even worse than the newer Teflon pans, although I would still probably steer clear from the newer Teflon um, if you're looking to upgrade. But even for, you know, the, the good quality, safer non-stick pans like ceramic, I would still probably play it safe and replace them soon after they've started to scratch and chip, since while the ceramic coating you know, it, it could be, or in theory is, is safe. Um, what's underneath like aluminum may not be as safe. Um, and you would get exposed to that. And especially at high temperatures that could be problematic. As for the best and safest, safest options, stainless steel is actually probably going to be the most durable and safest over time. However, it's there, you know, stainless steel is not actually naturally nonstick. Um, so you have to use quite a bit of, of you know, fat or, or oil or butter um, to, to make it nonstick. Cast iron, enameled cast iron and ceramic are also good options. Um, when it comes to specific brands for safe nonstick ceramic pans, I think uh, Caraway, Green Pan, Green Life, and Our Place are some of the better options out there. And between those brands, you'll get a pretty good spectrum of um, affordable on one end and you know up to decently expensive on the other. But I do think that safe pans are a good investment, especially if you cook a lot of your meals at home. And that's all I have. Uh, so Stuart Tracy, please feel free to uh, to follow up with with related or unrelated questions or comments. Did you say the the nonstick pans, the coating is the endocrine disruptor? Um, is that just Teflon specifically, or is that potentially? The aluminum that's under the ceramic or any anything um the the, the pfas in the in the teflon uh especially the old teflon are going to be the biggest culprits but other other um chemicals or or uh, materials can definitely be endocrine disruptors and mutagens as well although there's a lot we don't know about them as as you know um you know both in the context of using pans and also outside of the the nonstick pan conversation um yeah. so i think you know go, going toward the safer options um versus the options that we don't know a lot about um or that's probably the way to go mm -hmm. and the you know i've been in conversations lately with people about this and people who aren't concerned about scratch pans at all and particularly a a, a friend in the in the area family member that we've replaced some of his pans and then they're scratched again within a month you know it doesn't really take care of them and yeah. I'm something we eat over there regularly a big piece of it yeah exactly we eat over there often enough that I'm somewhat concerned about it um and just wanted more info on why I'm concerned about it I guess <laughs> I mean to see if I could <laughs> strengthen my argument but so endocrine disruptors is the biggest thing. 
That's the and, primary and, concern. And DNA mutations, mutagens that can, in theory, you know, lead to things like cancer down the road. Um, that's what what the implications of that would be. But um, mm-hmm. the hormonal disruptions as well would be something else. And the older, you know, especially problematic in the I think pre two thousand thirteen Teflon, yeah. but also now in Teflon or any chemical non stick, not like a ceramic, which yeah. is what we got at our house. But. Yeah. Okay. And again, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you control the things you can and you try not to worry about the things you can't. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes when you know what you should be worried about, it almost makes it worse. Um, you know, cause, cause then you, you know, it's, it's almost like ignorance is almost bliss sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, I would encourage you not to, you know, again, control the things you can and, and the, the things that you don't have as much control over. Right. You know just kind of let it I, I usually wouldn't think twice about eating at a friend's house and whatever they're serving me with for that one time, whatever. This is somewhere that we eat, you know, usually weekly, sometimes more, sometimes less, but so. Mm-hmm. One that was yeah. I mean, about. I don't know if this person would be open to something like stainless, which isn't really, like I said, nonstick per se, you have to, you know, kind of make it nonstick yourself, but if you wanted something super durable, it's going to last a long time. That's, you know, mm-hmm safe, that would be an option if, you know, at some point they were looking to upgrade, you know? Right. And if you use enough fat, it should be nonstick. I don't think, mm-hmm. I think you'd be fine with that. If yeah. it requires extra elbow grease or care, he's not it, going to be. That's where the... Yeah. And, you know, with, with the ceramics, as, as you know, you, you have to be careful about how high you heat them and what utensils you're using on them and, and mm-hmm. how you wash them and how you store them and all of these things. And, you know, that's great for people who are willing to you know, to, to go the extra mile, but some people aren't and, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Cast iron might be an option also. And that's the other, that's what we use at our house as well. Um, and I think he'd be open to that, but that's not for everything. Right. Yeah. All right. Megan. Hi, Stuart. Can you hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't, so I don't really know whether I can. Now we're not hearing you very well. Uh, the companies like Green Pan that have nonstick ceramics, do you, do they, is there any good information about what they're making that coating out of? Um, there is. I don't recall off the top of my head, but they do disclose it on their, on their website. Okay. And it's your feeling that that's going to be better than Teflon. Yes. Okay. I've always wondered about that. I've been using it. I've been using green pan for a long time. They're definitely sensitive to being overheated. Once they're overheated, they're not as nonstick or they become completely not nonstick. Yeah. You also mentioned stainless steel. Um, is there any reason why mild steel, if you don't mind having to, um, season it like you do a cast iron pan is is a bad idea. Is, sorry, is there any reason why what? Well, my mild steel. My, mild I, steel? I don't have one, but I have a friend who has a really nice mild steel frying pan that you have to season just like you do with a cast iron pan. Oh, sure. Um, I'm actually I'm not as familiar with that, but I would I would think that it would be just fine. You know, if it's, if it's, okay. 
steel and and you're seasoning it like cast iron um i don't have any reason to believe that that would be harmful in any way yeah that's what i thought but i just i'd throw that out there yeah see what you yeah, and I'm, I'm more than happy you know whether we're talking about you know the the quote-unquote safer ceramic pans or or anything else if if there's evidence out there that people know about um you know i'm more than happy to to change my mind about things but um that's kind of where things stand in my mind right now. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. I think the ones that we had bought for the house, for my friend's house were anodized aluminum. I don't have it up right now. But okay. I, I think that's what's below the ceramic typically. Well, it wasn't ceramic. Sorry. Oh, it's not ceramic. Okay. Okay. No. Okay. Because oftentimes there's the ceramic coating and then there's aluminum underneath, which mm -hmm. again can become problematic, like I said, when the ceramic starts to chip. Um, but uh, I don't know about the, you know, aluminum in particular. I, I don't love cooking with aluminum. I think there are some, you know, potential endocrine disruptors there. Um, I don't know about the stability of, you know, different types of aluminum that is that, that have been treated. Okay. On the high fructose corn syrup stuff, it sounds like it's more that when foods contain that, they're the highly palatable liquid coming with other without other fiber nutrients more than the actual, if, if it's fructose or high fructose corn syrup, it doesn't, there isn't as much of a difference. It's just the fact that with the high fructose corn syrup, they tend to be in foods that are yeah, yeah, you're not you going to be finding high yeah. fructose corn syrup in any kind of, you know, food that's on the quote unquote paleo diet, for example, right? Right. Um, but you do see it in in ketchup and crackers and all, you know, it's in so so many things. Yeah. But total grams of sugar and that that you know pack of crackers that contains that might be two grams per serving. I don't know. Right. In in which like case, just because it's in an ingredient on a list, does that mean you should avoid that? It's I, not know, healthy, obviously. It's not what I'm eating, but just for the sake of the argument, should yeah, that be avoided I, just because it has it on the, the ingredients list? Yeah. I mean, if, if there was an ingredient list that had, you know, honey and one that had high fructose corn syrup, I would probably go with the honey just because, you know, our bodies are probably more primed to deal with it anyway. Um, but yeah, if we're talking about small amounts, um, I, I personally wouldn't be concerned about it. Okay. Yeah. Unless, unless you're living off, you know, whatever the food is, right? Um, but if if you're eating it in a reasonable amount and the serving size is, you know, has two grams of total sugar in it, the amount of fructose in that is going to be very, very small. Yeah. You know, I think it, just, it makes every, it's so cheap for the producers. It's shelf stable and it just makes everything more palatable it's easy to sweeten things up increase people's tolerance and desire for sweet things like I think it has a a role in in overall health in society more than just in taking it in that moment mm -hmm. you know, leading to to cheap junk food yeah um but you know the ketchup or the crackers that have a couple grams actually you know consuming that in the moment doesn't sound like it's necessarily the end of the world yeah, exactly. And um, I was just looking this up because I wanted to make sure I was I was recalling correctly. Um, but agave syrup, which many people use as, you know, a healthy 
sweetener actually has more fructose or high, higher amounts of fructose um, percentage-wise than even high fructose corn syrup. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I have heard that. So it's one of those things that, you know, I'd be looking at the total fructose load um, and also the context of the person in the diet um, versus looking at very small amounts of really any kind of sweetener. Mm-hmm. I thought there was something that the way the high fructose corn syrup was, you know, the the molecule structure, the way it was actually digested and used by the system that made it different than other fructose. Not to my knowledge, um, but it's it's certainly possible that I've missed something. Megan. Yes. Do you know how to describe how high fructose corn syrup is made? I'm sorry, what? Can you describe how high fructose corn syrup is made? I actually don't know off the top of my head. Do you? Um, no, I just know it's a lot more complicated. Like it's a real chemical process. It's not, oh yeah, we squeeze the corn. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and it's, it's an enzymatic process, most certainly. Um, Enzymes added to the corn syrup in order to convert some of the glucose to fructose. So it's higher in fructose. Um, but obviously they, you, have, you have to get the corn syrup from the corn. And I don't know about how that process is. Oh, it looks like it's made from corn starch. So you start with corn starch, then you go to the corn syrup, then the enzymatic process makes it into the high fructose form. Um, but I don't know. I don't know the details of how you're going from corn to corn starch to corn syrup to high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, just always feels to me like once you get to stuff that's that highly engineered, it, it definitely isn't something our bodies are evolutionarily familiar to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I would certainly agree. <laughs> yeah. Something we talked about a while ago on here is the the 12 hour fast overnight. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that is 12 hours is not enough for any kind of, I forget what the term was, cellular clean out. Autophagy. Um, yeah. Autophagy. Yeah. So why, why the number 12? Like why is 12 hours still an important amount of time or a, something to shoot for if it's not enough for that? Cause that was like 14, 16 plus to get to autophagy. There are probably other other benefits of of having an extended say fasting window whether mm-hmm. they're metabolic you know you're having your you're keeping your glucose more steady and your insulin more steady for a longer period of time um whether they're related to digestion giving your digestive system a break for a period of time especially mm-hmm. overnight is you know that's just a, a it, it makes sense um that you're not eating when you're sleeping or when you should be sleeping um you know but for some people in some cases, 12 hours is too much, you know, um, if we're talking about, uh, you know, athletes really pushing it and needing more calories or people who need more calories in general, if you're not able to get it within a 12 hour eating window, I think 
you know, dropping that a little bit is fine. Um, but I wouldn't say that 12 is a magic number per se. It's just one that many people recommend. And it's one that I found to be, you know, reasonable for, for, mm-hmm. you know, 99% of people to get in enough nutrients and calories, but also to, you know, reap the benefits of not having food coming in for a period of time, even if those aren't really related to autophagy. Yeah, I think it is a reasonable time. And I, I we eat dinner later than I want most nights. <laughs> I've been been trending earlier, but you know, still a lot of times it comes in later. But I'm, you know, trying to time out that that 12 hours in the morning then to start breakfast. But you know, it doesn't always happen. And yeah, so it's a reasonable time, but just wondering what those health benefits are, what the benefit was of trying to strive for that 12. And I think another thing was. Um, you know, kind of the digestive waves coming through the longer period of fast, more of those, you know, having slow motility or constipation issues um, supposed to be able to help with that. Yep, absolutely. And that's, that's the case for more extended fasts, such as overnight fasts. Um, I guess extended is relative. Some people would say extended is multi-day, but in this case, extended being, you know, your 12 hour overnight, and then also you know, your fasting in between meals should help with that migrating motor complex um, and the, the sweeping digestive movements throughout the system as well. Yeah, the three to four hours between meals. Yeah, yeah, good, okay. Yeah. So the autophagy you know, is 14 it, easily, or if not more. For, for autophagy benefits, that's 14 hours at, a, at least and probably more to even to get to that. Yeah, yeah. But sorry, no. what were you gonna say? Um. Oh, I was gonna say, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard if you're trying to have, you know, you, you, the timing can be difficult if you're trying to optimize for everything, right? Because if you're trying to get enough calories in and then that's difficult and you're trying to have three or four, you know, feedings throughout the day and you're trying to consume that within a 12 hour window, you might not have four hours between every single meal or every single time you eat. Um, you know, so sometimes you, you kind of, there's a little bit of give and take that has to happen. Right. Yeah. And days that I have a snack, I definitely don't have four hours between snack and lunch and dinner, but yeah. And that's fine. You know, you're the, the things that you're eating are healthy. You're having that overnight fast, you know, whether or not it's 12 hours or a little bit less, um, I wouldn't be concerned about sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, eating two hours after you've had a snack. Right. Right. Yeah. Still trying to to increase total calories and I'm not grazing and snacking all day. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about artichoke extract for lowering LDL cholesterol? It was recommended to my husband recently. I Yeah, there is some evidence on it. I don't know the mechanism of action. Um, it's also good for motility, happens to be. Yeah. Um, it's in a com- it's in a product called Motility Activator that I like. Um, let me see if I can quickly find on PubMed. Lipid lowering effects of artichoke extract, a systematic review, meta-analysis. Um, let's see. You can find the full text here. So I'll share my screen. I cannot get the full text, it looks like, but um, it does seem to be useful for, um, reducing both LDL cholesterol, uh, cholesterol and triglycerides. So 
it has been shown in the literature to be helpful. Doesn't affect HDL, which is nice. Um, yeah. Motility also, LDL triglycerides lowering and possibly helping with motility. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, I don't know if there's been any studies looking at it in isolation from motility, but with ginger, it seems to have a synergistic effect with ginger. And what was the the supplement you said that it's fertility activator? Integrated therapy makes it. I'm not sure from this, I cannot tell. Um, hang on, let me see if I can. The, the bottle he has from Jaro is 500 milligrams of artichoke extract. Okay. Let me see if it I has some other, other non-active ingredients in it. Okay. Does say liver health and digestion. There is no mm -hmm. ginger or anything else in it. I just want to see age, cholesterol, some groups. Looks like. Looks like doses are anywhere from 600 milligrams per day up to almost 2,000 milligrams per day for the artichoke extract, for the triglyceride lowering effects. Not sure how many capsules he's taking it's per capsule, 500 milligrams. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you split the difference and say, you know, a capsule twice daily or something like that mm -hmm. to get a pretty like average dose there. Insoluble fiber is probably one of the most most beneficial things for um you know for lowering cholesterol if you're concerned about it. Insoluble fiber, you said. Oh, sorry, soluble, soluble, soluble. Yeah. So oats, legumes, um, you know, maybe some chia or flax seeds, root vegetables, bananas will have some soluble fiber. Um, those are probably the, the best sources, unless you want to go with supplemental. And then something and that'd like, be what like um sun fiber is, right? Yep, sun fiber, psyllium husk, um those kind of things. Psyllium seems to be a little bit more irritating to the gut than than sun fiber, but um they both seem to have a cholesterol lowering effect that's been documented in the literature. You do have to take pretty high amounts of them. I don't recall off the top of my head the amounts. Um of the supplemental fiber. So it might be, you know, worth focusing on the dietary fiber and then, um, you know, if needed, adding in something supplementally. Or even what about just a serving, focusing on the dietary fiber and having one serving per day yep. of sun fiber or selenium husk just as an yep. ongoing supplement. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then watching, you know, for most people, saturated fat are going to drive up um, LDL cholesterol as well. So again, if, if you're concerned about it, that would be something that, 
Um, you know, I'd be far less concerned about dietary cholesterol than I would be about dietary saturated fat. And I think, I think we, we talked before in office hours about, you know, the, even within the context of dairy, a butter may have a different lipid elevating effect than something like high fat yogurt. Uh, even if you're equating the amount of gram amounts of, um, of fat there. But generally speaking, I would say uh, dairy, uh, especially the, the concentrated sources of dairy and coconut, probably going to be the, the bigger culprits when it comes to um, dietary sources of, of saturated fat for most people. More so than, than red meat, bacon fat, that type of yeah, yes. so bacon fat has a decent amount of monounsaturated fat, depending on where you're getting it from. Although, you know, bacon is generally quite high in fat. Um, red meat, you know, if if we're talking about the amount of fat in, you know, a, a piece of red meat compared to concentrated sources like coconut oil or butter, um, again, less concerned about the red meat. Um, and it seems to be less of a culprit for people. Although some people end up, you know, being happier with their lipid profile when they, when they take it out, um, or when they go, you know, and focus on the leaner cuts of red meat. So sirloin steak versus ribeye steak. Um, or, you know, your 90, 95% ground beef versus 80% type thing. Mm -hmm. But again, not all the fat in beef and animals in general are, are saturated. Um, but if you take those other very concentrated sources of saturated fat, you're getting a pretty big load there. The butter and coconut oil in particular, other high fat dairy, potentially. Cream, ghee, yeah. What about cheese? And is there a difference in, with like aged cheeses versus, you know, a softer brie or a, even a pepper jack something? Yeah, I don't, I don't think the aging or the, um, you know, the, the firmness of the cheese makes a difference. In practice, I have seen everyone respond, you know, there's, there's people who seem to respond very dramatically to cheese. Um, and there's people who don't seem to respond really at all to cheese. And it's more like the, the butter and the, the ghee and the coconut oils that really drive up their lipids. So I think you kind of have to have to experiment with, with cheese. Yeah. And not even just lipid wise, uh, other health benefits or detriments. Is there any difference in an aged cheese? I've always heard was better for you than a soft um, cheese or unaged. You no, know, if I would say it's better for you, it's going to have less lactose for people who are lactose intolerant. Um, it may have more protein, although I don't think you can say that across the board. Um, I don't, I don't think there are, okay. yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily call it better or worse for you. Except potentially the less lactose if somebody were sensitive to that. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone's lactose intolerant wanting to add in, you know, dairy foods, usually you start with. The fermented ones, kefir, yogurts, maybe some harder cheeses, just because they tend to be more well tolerated than stuff that's softer, soft cheese, milk, cream. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, I think that's when it was recommended. It was like reintroducing dairy, starting mm -hmm. with HGs. Yep.
that was a lot of questions I had today. Thanks. Of course. <laughs> you guys always ask the best questions. Uh, <laughs> and Stuart, I found a, a study here on this recent um, high fructose corn syrup production and its new applications. Um, I obviously have not read it, uh, but um, it does seem to go into some of the, um, you know, the production process. So we'll link to that in the show notes if, if you want more on that. Are the shows still being put on a podcast? I missed last week and I didn't see it come in on my podcast thing. Mm, they should be, um, but I'll okay. double check with Elaine and make sure. Um, and speaking of next week, we may be moving to Tuesday, um, cause Monday's a holiday and I might be, I might be gone. Um, but you will get, um, you'll get notified if that's the case. I'm probably not going to be around next week regardless. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm traveling next Monday too. So I don't know where I am. <laughs> All right. Thanks uh, a lot. Have a great week, people. You're welcome. Bye, Stuart. Bye, Stuart. I'm going to schedule blood work. I do that through Elaine. Is that right? Um, that in a while. You can, either Elaine or Margaret can do it for you, but Margaret does, is doing, I think, more of the ordering of, of client tests right now. Um, okay. So let me make sure she's on your... I... Do you, do you use your telephone or do you just typically use email to communicate? Cause you can just email support at nourishbalancethrive.com okay. and um, then whoever, um, whether it's uh, Margaret or Elaine will, will get back to you and take care of you. Okay. I do. If, if I get an email that says I have something posted to my Trello board, I, yeah. I have it bookmarked and I go in and see it, but I don't use it very often. Yeah. And that's totally Is fine. there anything like your, your standard set of blood work? Um, Anything else you would request or suggest? I don't remember. Let me um, see. Check my notes. So back in, when we talked in November, I had a note to consider testing. Uh, wait, is that for testing? I think we were going to consider testing copper, zinc, and vitamin D if I remember right, I don't think you had copper and zinc the last time or potentially ever. And I had to, I didn't have the, I had copper written down. I'm not sure when these notes are from that I have this scrap of paper from, but um, I had also on there copper and a soluble transferrin receptor. Oh yeah, that's a more expensive marker. We could certainly run it, but it is the better marker for 
looking iron deficiency. Let me, uh, let me uh, just look at your numbers here real fast. Um, yeah, so, you know, if you look at your iron panel, iron's low, ferritin's low, TIBC is high, transferrin saturation's low normal, um, which would kind of point us to this kind of iron deficiency picture. Your hemoglobin and your hematocrit are fine. Um, you know, suggesting there's no anemia going on. I think that's why we wanted to run copper because copper can also decrease ferritin. Um, so we can certainly price it for you. I don't remember the price off the top of my head. Um, so if we okay. want to look deeper into the whole iron deficiency picture, that would be the next marker to run. Or you there's know, no importance to necessarily do it with this set. You know, a lot of these you like to get together at once. And when you put it into the algorithm that gives, you know, all that information, if we, if we do the copper, which I think was, you know, 20 bucks, do another iron panel, we could decide later to do the transparent mm -hmm. and receptor if we yeah, want to do diving. Yep. I think if I remember correctly, you want to test ferritin at the same time, but that that's cheap by itself. Um, so yeah, we can definitely, we don't have to do the soluble transparent receptor in the context of everything else that we run. We can decide later if you want to. And the regular set's like $75, is that right? I think about, yeah. Okay. Yep. So yeah, copper, copper, zinc, maybe vitamin D if you want to check up on it. Um, those would be the the ones that we talked about adding this time. And they if I were going to prioritize one, it would be copper, probably. Um, although zinc is also kind of nice to get alongside copper. I think it's about the same price. Okay. And that was, you had recommended a while ago too, more regular oyster consumption, one or two oysters per day instead of, you know, I'd have a can every few weeks before, but now I eat usually one, one a day, almost every day. That was for zinc and what else? Mostly zinc. Yeah. Although mostly oysters will have some copper, they will have some iron. They're, they're quite nutrient dense, but mostly for zinc. There were a couple of markers okay. that um, kind of pointed us to maybe supposed zinc deficiency, but the only way to know even though, you know, all of these markers are imperfect because um, they're not looking at, you know, the zinc levels in all of your tissue, just the zinc in your blood. Um, but the, that will kind of get us one step closer to figuring mm -hmm. out if, if that's enough for you. All right. Well, thank you for all the questions today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, good to talk to you and have a great week. Thanks. You too. Bye. Right. Bye, Tracy.